This is the Yesu Communitas Podcast, a show devoted to Hmong American identity, theology, and mission. Thanks for joining this episode. Be sure to like today's show and subscribe to Yesu Communitas on iTunes. And now your hosts, Daniel, Myla, and George. Welcome everybody back to the Yesu Communitas Podcast. Um, we're just going to kick it off with another episode. Um, but I guess before I even introduce the topic, um, let's just kick it off with a question. So we talked about what Hmong pastor you want to be. Then last episode, we talked about what white American pastor you want to be. So today, if you could be an African American pastor, any of them, who would you be and why? Mm-hmm. Well, the one that I've recently interacted with the most is Pastor Charlie Dates. And he mm-hmm. is a senior pastor at Progressive uh, Baptist Church in Southside Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, that that brother can preach. <laughs> he can he he brings fire when he when he preaches, and so I think it would it would just be really great to to see the work that um, he's doing there to to kind of be in that mind of what it looks like to to preach um, preach in a way that can can stir up a lot of um, inner just turmoil almost Mm, mm -hmm. of like how am i dealing with these issues that need to be addressed you know yeah um i think he just he just has such a great way of uh communicating again just urgency in in seeing like the importance of the church addressing social justice issues yeah you know um and and um yeah it's it's been amazing to see him preach he's preached at at ted's a number of times um, he he comes to uh, the Mosaic Gathering, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, a racial reconciliation kind of overall reconciliation uh, group meeting that gathers at TED's for um, on Wednesday mornings at at twelve. <laughs> <laughs> if you happen to be Pitch. at, at, at eleven a.m. Uh, at TED's, if you guys are in the area, uh, come and join us for Mosaic. But yeah, he's he's a great pastor and and really is able. He's to a young talk. guy too. I, yeah. he's only like I think thirty seven or oh, wow. thirty six maybe. He's younger than me. Mm. Uh, I was with him a couple weeks ago, and just great, great personality, sharp mm. guy. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I'd say TD Jakes. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> I was like TD Jakes. <laughs> uh, not because we share the same theology. But because he probably drives a really nice car. <laughs> get ready, get ready, get ready. Yeah. Now, well, so, I can see that. I can see that. So, okay. so not because we have the same theology, uh, which people give him a hard time. Uh, I'm not one of those people who would give him like a super, super hard time uh, because uh I, that's just not me, you know. I, I am, mm-hmm. you know. I was making fun of Joey Osteen last. I can see Joel Osteen, uh, Joel Osteen. Uh, so, you know, uh, and I'm not a prosperity person. <laughs> uh, but man, if you ever listen to Jake's, number one, he can preach. Yeah, mm-hmm. he doesn't use a manuscript, doesn't use notes, mm-hmm. and he's profound. Mm. Uh, now, again, uh, you know, you're gonna have trouble with this theology, especially if you go to any one of our seminaries or. You know, ninety-five percent of evangelical seminaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has some—he uh, has some very practical wisdom. He's very witty. Um, he uh, there are moments where he's—he's he's very sincere. 
Um, I've, I've, I've heard him in interviews where I, I do, th- I, I would separate him from the preachers of LA. You guys ever yeah, seen the, yeah. uh, that one, uh, reality TV show? Like he's not the <laughs> yeah. preachers of LA. <laughs> no. So he would be, yes, kind of separate out of that category. Now he's no Thabiti or, uh, uh, you know, kind of your reform African American, uh, uh, pastors, you know, uh, Eric Mason. He's not like these guys either. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like the, you know, Stephen Furtick of African-American pastors or, um, with, you know, kind of a bit more, uh, uh, you know, uh, prosperity teaching and stuff. Uh, but I, I like him as a person, I guess that's what I'm saying. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, um, I was in Dallas for four years, three years, I never visited his church. Um, but I met one of his, uh, f- uh worship pastors who eventually joined staff and he left because of multiple reasons. But, um, you know, when I met John, the worship pastor and he, and he was leading worship for us and John was a solid guy, a great guy, loves the Lord, loves Jesus. Mm. Um, and you know, I just, it, it showed me that, you know, you can't throw stones all the time. Like we can't, very few people in the church were given the gift of being a police, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now I do, I do think that we do have police in the church, you know, mm-hmm. that are supposed to guard the gospel. We all should guard the gospel. As pastors and ministers, that's our primary duty. Uh, very few people have the role and the calling to call out other people. And um, yeah. And so, um, anyways, I like Jake's. So... I like him too. <laughs> I think I once saw him. I think he was like preaching on tithing. He's like throwing dimes like at <laughs> I was like, dude, ten percent. There we go. Um I would say here's me and my undercover people. There's this guy in um the San Francisco area. His name's Pastor Benjamin Robinson. He's just mm. out of a small church called Living Hope Christian Center. Incredible teacher. Like mm. Um, I don't know, just the way that he can preach the word. I don't, there's something about black pastors where mm-hmm. they could say nothing and it sounds so profound. <laughs> not that he's saying nothing. Everything he says is incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I love um, him not only because he's a good teacher, but he's married to this older Korean American woman. Mm. Very like She's like fire. Um, so his mm. church, the nature of it is very multicultural, um, multi-generational. And um, also just the demographic of his church is it's like a male predominant church so i think that says a lot about the kind of pastor you know yeah, in yeah. in today's world every church is um what 60 70 percent women and so mm-hmm. i think he has a way where i've heard people say like oh, he's the first pastor who made me feel like i want to be a man mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and so he's a great teacher if you mm-hmm. guys don't know him you should listen to him what was it benjamin benjamin robinson robinson yep okay. so the church is living hope christian center oh that's good yeah Okay, so for this episode, um, we're titling it Reimagining the Hmong American Narrative Through Jesus. And so kind of the premise of this is, you know, when you think about the Hmong narrative, it's a really sad one, right? You think about kind of the main things of our, our story are we're a people without a nation, a people without a leader, a people without written history, Um the part of our history is titled the secret war. So yeah, even yeah. that it's like not even known. Yeah. So when I think about it and when I hear my grandparents or my parents talk about the Hmong people, it's slightly depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of want to do this episode in, the, in in a way where we could see, okay, how could we look at our narrative through the lens of Jesus and not see it as the most depressing narrative yeah. that we could think of, you know? Yeah. And so just to jump off with the question, um, 
in your guys' opinions, are Hmong people alone in our struggle to develop the an American um, identity and theology? Yeah, I mean, definitely not. Uh, you know, I think there's kind of a few different streams. There are, are those who have a very similar background to us, um, uh, Cambodians, Lao. Uh, shout out to all my friends at SEAC, uh, Southeast Asian mm. uh, uh, Conference and, and Leadership Summit. Uh, Ken Kong and those guys, uh, Thai. I can't pronounce Thai's last name because it's like 18 different letters. Those Lao and <laughs> Is Thai. He thai? <laughs> Lao and Thai people have a lot of myth, myth is a pond or something like that. Uh, but leaders of uh, Southeast Asian movements and churches that uh, have very similar history, struggles, questions. Um, and to be honest with you, again, not bragging, where Hmong people are just slightly, slightly, slightly ahead in mm. terms of just development. Yeah. Uh, not, not, not worth, but, you know, just kind of, you know, development and stuff that structure, structural, structural development. Like, for instance, I think Thai told me uh, at one point, I did a conference for them uh, in Arkansas, and he said that um, he can he can only name out of all the Lao uh, uh, churches and stuff, he can only name uh, one or two full time youth pastors, and so that's kind of mm. where they're at. Yeah. Whereas I think you know for most Hmong churches now, I mean, there's probably not a youth pastor in every church, but that's a very normal position, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that, you know, there's that stream that's very close to us. Yeah. And then there's other streams that are not as close, but struggle in the same way. Hispanics, obviously, are struggling again, uh, predominantly because, you know, there are a couple of things that are kind of stacked against them in terms of our politics and in the way that they're perceived through media and, and those kinds of things. Um, and then there's, for me, also the African-Americans that are probably the most developed in understanding some kind of American identity. You know, because I think they've been here the longest in terms of non-white uh, peoples, and they've had more time to process it. And mm-hmm. I think that you know, you're, we're starting to see African theology, African American theology, not African theology. Those mm-hmm. are two different things. Mm-hmm. But African American theology flow a little bit more. You know, which I think sometimes people are very rushed to judge as, uh, you know, just social justice or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, um, I don't think most people realize that. In the African American lens, you can't divorce yeah. good theology and social justice. It's very intertwined. It's like yeah. trying to take the social justice elements out of the Old Testament. How do you do that? Yeah. You can't, right? So that to them, that's very much there. So I, I feel like those are some groups. Yeah, yeah. I think I think if we compare Hmong American identity and theology to our white evangelical counterparts, um, it looks so disparaging um, that, uh, you know, the rest of the American church, uh, because it's it's more seen as a white evangelical church, um, they're, not, they're not going through what we, we are going through right now. And so just understanding that, um, that part of it of like, yeah, if we compare ourselves to the white evangelical church, um, it looks like we're alone in it. Like we're so far behind. Like there's, it looks like it's going to take a hundred years before <laughs> we're able to get to where they're at, right. you know? And so the difficulty with that, uh, and tying that back to this question is that, uh, I think as the Hmong American church, we have to find other groups, um, mm. that, that we can relate to better and develop theology better yeah. with. Right. Um, and I think the, the struggle is the white evangelical church has developed, all these resources and they're the resources that we go to right mm-hmm. away. You know, we're, we're more willing to jump to a John Piper 
book than we are to a, a book of you know uh, other minority counterparts and so um i think if we if we can begin to to develop our understanding of like what would it look like for the Hmong church to partner up with an african american church and and develop ministry together in those spaces mm-hmm. um we can we can definitely see those those pieces of of commonality um and and develop a better understanding of what it means to be a minority group within the church um within america and, and how we can catalyze our, our movement and catalyze our growth. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that was something I was talking to my uncle the other day about was I've never sat in class and it never hit me that like my professor, who's this older white American pastor, has a completely different lens than I do when he's talking about theology, you know, and yeah. I've never tried to um, nothing he's saying is wrong. Everything is probably like it's it's right. But I've never tried to relook at what he's saying through the lens of my parents' story as Hmong immigrants, you know. Mm. And how does that change? Uh, not necessarily the content, but how I see it, how I can rearticulate it, how that is like woven into my story. And so it's just never hit me. And I think a lot of um, us trying to find our identity and our theology as Hmong Americans, it's important for us to even realize like, oh, there's a difference between you mm-hmm. and me and that's okay. You know, yeah. um, there's a celebration in that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Can you guys um, talk a little bit about kind of the orphan spirit among kind of the Hmong people, especially going through a war and things like that. And then how have we seen that throughout the Hmong American experience, that idea of an orphan spirit? Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I love that phrase "orphan spirit" because uh, I think it captures um, it captures a, a worldview that uh, looks uh, very helpless, but still doing your very best to survive. I yeah. mean, to me, when I think about orphan spirit, that that's that's what you know. And there are a lot of successful kind of orphan-minded uh, people, industries, uh, but it's this whole idea that. I don't know who I am thoroughly, uh, so I need to prove myself in order to create an identity, in order to create um, a, a story, a narrative. You know, so yeah. if, you, if you think about a biological orphan, they have no clue who their parents are, and so the rest of their life is actually spent creating uh, some kind of legacy because they, they're not living into a current legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, although you can be very successful as an orphan the motivation behind uh, your success could be very different, you know, not saying that about all orphans. You know, my dad was an orphan. He, he didn't know his parents. And so, um, and so I think if you take that metaphor and you apply it to, uh, to, to, to Hmong people and broaden that category to those who have, were birthed out of war mm. um, and, and, and those kinds of things, I think the natural tendency is to always want to take care of yourself first. Mm. It's, it's that preservation, you know, yeah. that, that Maslow hierarchy, that foundational level, just need to survive. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that that is not a condition or a situation as much as it is a mindset. Mm-hmm. that I need to survive because yeah. the guy who needs to survive, you can put him in a huge house and he'll still feel like he needs to survive. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're going to, you know, you give him a, a fat paycheck and he or she will still feel like they need to survive. They need to take care of their own. You know, it's kind of that whole idea of, you know, you, you bring somebody who's homeless into your house and, you know, um, you're, they're sitting at the dinner table with you and they're eating this grand meal and yet they're still sneaking bread into their pocket just in case, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
and I think that there's a lot of that that um, uh, is a part of our culture, a part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I look back to to a lot of just my dad's history, um, and it's it's difficult because uh, he experienced the war. You know, he was a part of the militia growing up, and you know, and as a teenager walking around, you know, making sure the village is safe, um, like. I think he's only told me one story because everything else is way too difficult to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know? And so as a Hmong American experience of this orphan spirit, um, I think there are still a lot of pieces that we're unwilling to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of spaces that we haven't necessarily processed through um, that if we want to, to really get a full understanding of who we are as a people group, we have to talk about these pieces. Um, I think even also just this understanding that um, orphans, uh, like you were saying, uh, can and do become successful because of this mindset of I need to survive. And and beyond that, when they are successful um, and they bring on another generation, right, then their mentality switches to I need to provide everything for this next generation um, that that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And so I want to do that. Um, and so we see even in our experience as first and second generationers, um, this mentality of like our parents who want to provide everything for us, mm-hmm. um, because they didn't have it. And so, um, how that trickles down then through the generations of like, our parents are still trying to care for, um, for, for myself, I'm, I'm a millennial, you know? And so, in, in America, what it means to be a millennial is now tying itself to this refugee experience of parents who, who went through war are telling their kids to stay at home, mm-hmm. you know? And so when I'm, when I'm at school and, and this phenomenon of, of millennials and why are they staying at home and everything like to, to the white American culture, it's like, this is a phenomenon. Right. Mm-hmm. But to the Hmong culture, it's like, no, my parents told me to stay at home like yeah. until, you know, I'm married. And even after I'm married, they're like, stay home and just do life with us, you mm-hmm. know. And so um, just understanding then uh, even theologically, I can see how that mentality has carried itself over into the church mm-hmm. where the first generation, yeah. you know, bought these huge buildings and, <laughs> you know, um, you know, wanted to provide for the next generation in a way that. Uh, they wouldn't have to struggle to to continue on the church, mm-hmm. you know. And so, in the Hmong American experience of um, this orphan spirit, we still see that kind of trickling down. And then, you know, as second generationers, third generationers, we're looking at it like, no, I don't want, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want what you provide right. for yeah. me. You know, yeah. I, I want to, I want to do the things that I want to do, um, and how that affects the relationships. Then, yeah, uh, and so it's kind of kind of a very interesting yeah concept to to think about totally yeah 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 i mean i think so when we were in our first episode when we were introducing ourselves and we we're joking around about me being from the hood <laughs> and you're saying <laughs> uh what did you say you can't you can take me out of the hood but you can't take the hood out of me right right yeah. right so i feel like that's very much that could totally relate to the orphan spirit of the Hmong mm-hmm. people right like mm-hmm. we're out of the war but it seems like every old person I talk to is still living as if the war is like was yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, today's Veterans mm-hmm. Day and I want to celebrate yeah. my grandpa, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Because the war is such a close narrative to him. Like that's long gone, but I feel like that's still a real living part of them. And mm. um, in a sense, I think that's, it's great, but I think it 
it forces people to constantly live in this lens of we're wounded people, we're victims of our story and because it's such a close thing, you know? And yeah. um, I think it. I've seen that manifest in like a lack of trust in other people who aren't Hmong, right? Mm-hmm. The suspicion of <laughs> what do they want, you Everyone's know? Everyone's our enemy. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. And so there's never been um real integration you know like i think even when we were talking about like other southeast asian people like lao cambodian like i'm surprised i don't really know anybody of that background growing up i was either with the Hmong community or with my white friends at school you know Mm -hmm. and so there was such a suspicion and a lack of trust and i've seen that kind of in the narrative of the Hmong people as well so yeah and i would say that the church has not done a great job processing that uh for for the next generation, mm-hmm. Part, yeah. partly because what you were pointing out, the first generation has not had the time and the emotional capacity to process it for themselves. So they're yeah. definitely not going to process that experience for their children. They're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. Um, but the church, uh, you know, like like we do, uh, quickly became busy about uh, building, you know. Uh, an institution and to a large degree it's it's been positive you know building among american church and that has been an outlet to continue on such a you know a positive outlet to continue Mm -hmm. what what started as a very sad kind of Mm -hmm. uh, origins you know war and leaving home country i I think but we have not done a great job processing that um and so uh, our generation we still live into that narrative, you know, mm-hmm. the victimhood and stuff like that. I think the non-Christians have uh, done a better job engaging it. Now, I, I don't agree with their conclusions, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but they've done a better job at um, continuing that story because this is this is what's happened in the Christian circles, among Christian circles. We went from, you know, 70, you know, 75, war in in 75, Americans pulled out you know, swam across Mekong, Thailand. Some of us started coming 77, 78. Our parents, my family came in 79. Mm-hmm. We went from that straight into assimilation into American culture. Yeah. And then uh, for those of us who are Christians, we began developing Hmong churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's what we've been doing for the last 30 years, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that that we've not had a break to kind of think about what what actually happened, you know, and here, I don't think we all need to sit across on a couch from a therapist and like, you know, <laughs> speak our heart and, and which is also a healthy option. Which is, <laughs> which right, is right, right. Georgia's specialty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to take clients away from you, George. <laughs> um, but, but what, what, uh, the non-Christians have done beautifully is they've capitalized on the fact that, Hey, we've been given an opportunity, you know, we went through hell, uh, but now we're here. Let's make the best of it. And so they've done a good job. Again, uh, I think I said this in the last podcast, they're more involved in politics. Mm-hmm. They're probably a bit more educated in terms of like uh, the um, s- certain areas of sociology, the sciences, those kinds of things. The Christians, we, we, we are educated as well. There's no doubt. I mean, we have a lot of medical doctors and uh, but we're not as involved in the social sciences. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, they are the ones that are also uh, a bit more active in developing um, uh, monuments to our history. Yeah. 
the museums, uh, you know, that are, are popping up in Minnesota and mm-hmm. um, the conferences that are around Hmong identity. And so I see a Hmong Christian community uh, trying their best to form some kind of uh, narrative around their experience, you know. Um, and in the Hmong American church, we have adopted a narrative yeah. that has... Um, that we've wholesale adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an evangelical narrative, which is not an incorrect narrative. But we, we it's almost like we cheated, you know? <laughs> like we didn't do the hard work of trying to actually... Shortcut. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we adopted an evangelical narrative for ourselves. And so, um, which to a certain, certain degree is not bad, mm-hmm. you know? Because uh, it immediately gave us a new purpose for living. It gave us a new way to think about, you know... Uh, 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 our mission, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder if we sh- are shortchanging ourselves, you know, here, here's an example. Okay. Um, so I was talking to a, a missiologist, um, a missiologist is somebody who studies missions. Uh, she was out in San Francisco and we we're talking about the de- decline narrative of the North American church. And now we used to be more Christian in North America. Now we're less Christian. So predominantly the reason why we're planning more churches and trying to teach people missions is to, to, to essentially win back, you know, what used to be somewhat of a Christian society. Nobody agrees that it was actually a Christian society, but you know, yeah. for the most part, there's, there's, there was more of a biblical worldview. And so, um, you know, so this, this tends to be the storyline of church planting of missions and evangelism. You and I, we're very comfortable with that storyline, right? As mm-hmm. right? In our seminaries, that's the, that's the predominant storyline that we're told as evangelicals. Um, and because most Hmong people are evangelicals, like we're not mainline, we're not Catholic, you know, we're evangelical Protestants. That tends to be the overarching narrative, you know, which again is not a wrong or a bad narrative. But I was talking to her, her name was Linda. I said, Linda, you know, the reality is this, you know, I've never, I don't live in a decline narrative though. Because my parents never lived uh, the history of a North American yeah. country yeah. that used to be Christian, you know. Uh, my narrative is a lot different, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a decline narrative. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear that that's happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, it's hard. For, it's hard for me to relate. But so you know, uh, but we have. A, it's easy for us to adopt that narrative for our, ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. when the reality is that, no, we had a, a really real experience that is shaping the way that we think about missions. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that we can't sympathize with white Americans and what's happened in North America. Cause we should, because it is our country and it is our space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that should also just be a stream to help form the way that we think about who we are. And I think if we could do that more, we're actually catching up to what, non-Christians have been doing for at least the last 30 years because um, they have not had another... Well, okay, I should say, they have had competing narratives thrusted onto them as well. They have adopted, for a lot of them, a civil rights way of talking about huh. identity, which is a little bit unfair because that's the black struggle, yeah. which I don't think you can just adopt wholesale for yourself. I think yeah. that's one of the... What, you know, what the LGBTQ community probably uh, is doing that I don't you know, that I don't think it's right. You mm-hmm. can't adopt somebody else's movement for your own. Yeah. Um, so we do see that happening in non-Christian. Uh, but it, all that's to say is that I think we all, uh, Christians, we need to catch up in being able to to rethink, you know, our story. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so then I guess as we're talking about the Hmong narrative and kind of the way that we see it, we understand it, our parents did, our grandparents did, like, um, when we throw Jesus into that mix, right? Like, what difference does that make to our narrative, to our experience? Yeah, I think as as Daniel was sharing, um, it's very interesting to to see the differences in the narratives between uh, the one that we've adopted as as evangelical Christians mm-hmm. and the one that non Christians have adopted. And when I when I look back in history to to my great grandfather's story, um, those narratives are different as well. Mm-hmm. Um, his narrative was. Uh, he's he's found a greater power he's found a greater um a greater being to to be accountable to and to trust and to um to put faith in um and and through that you know he's he's found joy he's found he's found purpose and he wants to share this with everyone else right um and so my great grandfather goes out and and does that um you know in a matter of three months that the Adrian officer gone, you know, he's already shared what he knows about the gospel to most of the rest of the village. Right. Mm-hmm. Now the, the non-Christian view of that was, Oh, he, he's broke and he's down on his luck. And the only reason why he's accepting that white man's message is because he's got nothing else, huh. you know? And so, uh, in a way, that kind of mentality continues to carry itself, um, which has translated into you throw away culture when you become a Christian. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so it's just interesting to see um, how those two different outlooks have played themselves out. Mm-hmm. And so now, even though we've adopted this evangelical um, storyline, this narrative, um, and it's not fully ours, right? Uh, we also see that, uh, like you were saying, non-Christians also trying to to find other narratives to adopt. And so as we have these conversations about what it means to come full circle, right, then we're trying to, to figure out um, how do we present our narrative with Jesus in the picture to the non-Christian in order to help them see that there's more purpose and there's there's more than just striving to make it in the world as a people, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's kind of where we're at now is like yeah. we're Hmong, we're here, like we have a community and like <laughs> yeah. we're gonna yeah. make noise, you know. Yeah. Um. But there's more to it than that than that, and I think we, uh, when we when we look at our history in light of Jesus, even like the difficulty of yeah, we we went through war. And, and we lost everything time and time again, even back from, from being in China. You know, we lost our home there. We lost our home in southwestern China. We lost our home in Southeast Asia, right? And, and like you were saying at the beginning of this podcast, it can be a very depressing story. Mm-hmm. But when we see it in light of God made this happen, God made this happen, God made this happen, here we are in America, here we have this new narrative of, of who Christ makes us and who Christ is developing us to be as a community, like it changes everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, those are, those are like just different ways to see the Hmong narrative um, in a light that brings hope yeah. and purpose. 
three things come to mind. Uh, one is uh, looking at Jesus's life and taking his his pattern of life and saying that um, in some ways that that's that's the pattern for for any kind of like true life. And so yeah. you see you see Jesus who is living <clears throat> a good life uh, and yet he's still unfairly um, you know uh, murdered and crucified. But not just unfairly, but on behalf of other people, mm-hmm. and yet uh, he's resurrected uh, to show that there's a new life and there's a better life, uh, and a life that is uh, aligned with the the uh, the purpose of the universe, the purpose of of the divine, God's purposes. I think that gives a blueprint or a platform to begin talking about the meaning and purpose of suffering to people. Mm-hmm. It, they're not going to accept it wholesale. Like you're not going to tell that to somebody. And they're like, oh, okay, well, now I understand why we <laughs> suffered as among people. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you if you have that at the back of your head, that you know all of life is really patterned after that. This is, this is what Jesus taught before Jesus died. He even said this himself in John 12, that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. Uh, it can't give birth to life, right? And so Jesus mm-hmm. is talking about this principle of the universe that he himself lived it out as well. And that's that, you know, um, true life comes from death. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something about that that a lot of people can relate to. It may sound like a fairy tale. It may sound more kind of just like a metaphor, but I think it's important for us to understand that pattern yeah. or else we will spiral into despair, you know, uh, or get bitter. Mm-hmm. Secondly is uh, the... The the very real encounter that people can have with Jesus that I think is that changes our, our the way that we think about because um, I don't think we've had that that phenomena in Hmong history that a person that God Himself could interact with you and like you were saying um, in your grandfather's story that uh, is more powerful than the spirits like I still think that that, that particular narrative holds true yeah. mm-hmm. as a matter of fact in a Western secular world I think that's going to become more and more an important uh, narrative. It, it, it was it was one that kind of started the charismatic movement mm-hmm. um, that God will shows up. And that's my dad in the background, by the way. <laughs> this is totally a Hmong podcast because there's an old Hmong dude in the back talking on his cell phone, disregarding what we're doing. That's cool. Um, <laughs> and, but the, the whole charismatic kind of, uh, you can have an encounter with God and God can actually overcome you know, the forces of darkness in your life. Um, we're not far from that. Just because we're secular doesn't mean that, that that's that's not meaningful still. Right. As a matter of fact, I, I, I predict that that particular understanding of God is probably going to be one of the most important ways in which we'll see hard-hearted people come to know Him. Because mm-hmm. um, when once you're hard-hearted, it's not about evidence anymore. It's not about logic or argumentation. You know, I think it has to be about a pure encounter with a person. Yeah. And so I think um, we have not had that phenomena in the history of Hmong people up until recently, as far as we know. I mean, there could have been Christians back in 1500s. We just don't have mm-hmm. documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, to me, being Hmong American, introducing that kind of person to a Hmong American, um, I think that's a that's a pretty profound thing. I'm, I'm thinking of the H&D crowd that we were talking about earlier that I was mm-hmm. sharing that with the last episode or... Um, those who are a bit more um, uh, that are, uh, this is happening in the Hmong community where they're kind of getting more, you know, uh, uh, involved in the mystical kind of religions and stuff like that. Um, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't discount an encounter with Jesus as still being a very important part of um, their American experience, you know. And then probably the last thing, the third thing is um, one way, and this is for those Hmong people who have become very secular and very kind of like, 
following the trends of Western civilization, enlightenment, and, and those kinds of things. I think we're going to see that uh, if you take away Jesus, if you take away the existence of God, but specifically if you take away you know Christianity, um, that we're going to see a lot of a lot of the luxuries and value of Western civilization disappear. This is actually what Friedrich Nietzsche meant when he says uh, that God is dead. Mm-hmm. What he meant by that was that it wasn't so much that oh people don't believe in God anymore. What he meant by that is that we're at a point now in history where we're deconstructing the very thing that built our civilization, which is this idea of of God, and in particular the Christian God, Judeo Christian God, mm-hmm. uh, which gives uh, humans intrinsic din- dignity. Like that is the basic foundation of Western civilization. Throw into that some Greek ideas of uh, political philosophy, but so. For 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 Hmong people, if we go the route of which Western secular secular trends go, and we begin thinking, oh, you know, it's not cool to be a believer. Like, how can you be so dumb to believe and stuff like that? They're quickly going to find that the very thing that gave them the liberties and the freedom and the luxuries to to do what they're doing today mm-hmm. um, is the very thing that they are agreeing to deconstruct. And so, I think it's going to be very important for us to reintroduce to Hmong people that the luxuries that we get to enjoy today are actually still uh, founded on this idea of, you know, God of the Bible and mm-hmm. Jesus. Like if you were to investigate the founding of not America, but the founding of Western civilization is intrinsically um, involves, uh, you know, the belief of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not going to win people over, but I think yeah. this is this is a better understanding of Western civilization than um, Christianity is white man's religion mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, you know, America is a Christian nation and we need to become Christians because America is Christian. Like, you know, which you and I, we don't think that way, but a lot of Hmong people do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important for us to be able to talk uh, with non-Christians at this level to help get at some of the foundational beliefs that, um, that I think are, aren't necessarily correct, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think as we were talking about this, like it just makes me think the gospel is in itself, it's a redemptive narrative, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that's what it is. And I think as Hmong American Christians, we can't afford to think of our narrative without the redemptive aspect of it, right? Like mm-hmm. there's, you can't do that if, if you're, you can't incorporate Jesus into your story and there not be any sense of redemption. Yeah. And so I think that's why it's so important for us to actually see the other end of our story and to actually be able to articulate that, especially to our non-Christian Hmong people, because like what you said, what they're, what they're doing with the civil rights, you know, mm-hmm. narrative is they're essentially a, there's essentially a hunger for a redemptive narrative for the mm-hmm. Hmong people. We have the tools and the story of redemption. Um, they're seeking out for it by other means. And so I yeah. feel like there's this actually serves like as a gateway of, hey, like together as Hmong people, not as you're a non-Christian, I'm a Christian, but as Hmong people, there's a there's a flip side to our story that we could discover together, you know, and I think there's mm-hmm. something like really powerful about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess just, Throwing it out there, it seems like a lot of work for us to have a a hard narrative and for Jesus to have to come and work through us to redeem a narrative. Like, it it just seems very cumbersome and complicated, right? Mm -hmm. And so why do you guys think, like, God allowed that to happen, you know, for things in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia? Like, why did God allow those narratives to even happen? I I, I think... uh we're very 
privilege to be able to ask that question um, because when you're experiencing the suffering, it's hard to, you know, you don't have enough, uh, you know, you're just trying to survive. So I, mean, I find it hard for my, my dad to answer, ask this question. So I feel very fortunate that we can ask this question. Um, I think if I had to, you know, look at the, the theme of the Bible, uh, you know, I think I look at Joseph um, and here's somebody who was sold into slavery for the salvation of his people. Yeah. And I think that I just see that happening so much in the Bible. Again, when you're going through it, when you're Joseph going through that, you know, I don't think you're thinking that. Yeah, everything's in hindsight. Yeah, everything's <laughs> in hindsight, you know, which is really, I mean, a lot of what theology is, is our, our recollection of what, our reinterpretation reinterpre- of our experience in light of who God is. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, Joseph at the end of his, you know, at the end of that story is able to say to his his siblings, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we we can begin to say those things. You know, I think it might have been a bit early, probably in the 80s and 90s to say too much of that, especially since there were still a lot of people in refugee camps um, coming out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, but if I had to say, uh, you know, if I had to give the classic example, Sunday school answer, I, I would say, number one, because for whatever reason, God thought that it would bring him more glory. Yeah. Again, yeah. I struggle with with feeling good about that, but I do know intrinsically I subscribe to that idea that God doesn't do anything that wouldn't bring him glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, kind of like a phoenix rising out of the ashes, like God's glory is so much brighter now because we were formed out of a war experience. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I think because uh, uh, having that experience... Um, we do have a bit more of a, a humble attitude in which we approach things in life. We don't assume, you know, that we're going to be the leaders in the room when we walk into a room filled with, you know, white African Hispanic people. So I think there's something about that humility that's intrinsic to our, our heritage that I think is uh, very helpful when we are working alongside of other people. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're much more willing to be servants than we are leaders. Um, I think probably the flip side is more the issue. Sometimes we need to be leaders yeah. uh, more. Um, uh, and I think uh, uh, probably, you know, my my final answer, you know, to this speculation um, is I think um, God saw a situation where in America it used to be, you know, quote unquote Christian, whatever, you know, um, and we were sent here as missionaries. I, it's, I mean, mm. it's hard for me to escape mm. that, you know, uh, that whole notion that we're actually here to, to reach other North Americans, uh, with the gospel, you know, yeah. um, it doesn't satisfy the hurt and the pain that our, our parents' generation went through. Um, but I do think it will justify some of it as we do our job mm-hmm. as missionaries to North America. Yeah. I think uh, what your your professor uh, asked you in your class, um, just the consideration of like why Hmong people don't have a nation, mm-hmm. and maybe it, it is that you know yeah. we're called to be missionaries. You yeah. know, um, I think you know I, I completely agree with everything that you've just said, Daniel, and like you you jump to that that story of of Jesus healing the blind man and people asking like why is he blind is he blind because his parents sin is he blind because he sin like suffering doesn't happen you know for for any particular reason other than after the suffering that God might be glorified um in the outcome and so 
I think as we look at our history, um, you know, it might like to, to non-believers who might be listening, like it might sound really crude that God would make people suffer so that he <laughs> might, you know, uh, be glorified in it. But when we, when we see who God is and, and when we see the plan that he has, um, it, it's, it brings me more joy to know that those things happen so that I'm here today, that we're here today able to have these kinds of conversations about why these things matter um, than to to have gone through all that suffering and, and just have to live with suffering, mm-hmm. you know. And so this narrative of, of Jesus uh, making himself known to us so that we might understand why we've gone through what we've gone through um it it just changes it changes the whole entire paradigm and so i think as as we look at our history in light of who jesus is and what he's planning to do with us in the future um those pieces uh bring bring a lot of hope and a lot of joy and a lot of purpose in understanding that we're not called to just settle in our christianity settle in our faith and get comfortable and like enjoy what we get on Sunday mornings. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Daniel, in one of our conversations, um, you had said knowledge puffs up, Mm -hmm. right? And so even for us as Christians, as we look at these narratives, um, we can know all these things and we can uh, know that God's allowed all these things to happen um, for his glory. But if we don't do anything with that knowledge, which which what I'm getting to now is like moving towards mission, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If we don't do anything with it, then we just puff up with, mm-hmm. with knowledge of, oh, yeah, God was great, and we can testify about him um, by, by being Christians and sitting in our churches on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. But there's so much more that we can do and that we're called to do um, when it comes to, again, coming full circle and understanding who God is and how he's interacted in our context and, and then sharing that experience with the rest of the world so that he might continue to be glorified yeah Mm. yeah yeah i think there's this aspect of um i don't know i don't know if i agree with this 100 percent, but i think i'm 90 percent there of like for every identity that god has intended for us as a people there's a counterfeit identity that we could Mm. ascribe to right Mm. so i think it's important for the Hmong people to work through the identity that we've associated ourselves with and to find the redemptive actual identity that god intended for us right and so we've said like we're people of war so we could look at that as the counterfeit of um we're victims or we could say we're actual survivors and Mm. Mm -hmm. made to be warriors for the kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you look at that, there's a sense of pride, there's a sense of, like, justice and ability to actually do things, you know? Or you can say, um, yeah, like, we're people who with an orphan spirit, right? But what is the redemptive identity of that? Like, we actually have a father. We don't have to work through anything else because we don't have a father. We can Mm -hmm. just pick one up there, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, there is this... Yeah, idea of I think it's important for the Hmong people to begin to redefine the identities that we've had um, because once we do, I think we can start to actually act out of that instead yeah. of the narrative that we've heard growing up. Mm. Um, and so, 
yeah, I think like you were saying earlier, like it just kind of gets passed down and it trickles into our generation. And we just take that on to ourselves. Like, oh, we're a people without a nation. That's the first thing I say when people are like, you're Hmong. I'm like, oh yeah, we're people without a nation, you yeah, know? Yeah. And when Pastor Bob Roberts redefined that identity for me as no, you're a missionary. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, yeah. dude, yeah. like There's it made so much me, more pride in that. yeah, it made me feel like I could actually do something versus dude, we don't have a country. Like this sucks, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think this is the time where either we have to redefine those identities or we're going to ascribe to them. And then mm-hmm. we might lose who God had intended for us to be or yeah. push it off to the next generation to define. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of capturing that as a question and I'm going to throw it on you guys. Like why is it important for our generation here and now to kind of capture this idea of reimagining our narrative? Yeah, I, man, I think the weight of this responsibility should, should feel heavy with every generation. I would feel like it, we, if there was ever a generation that didn't feel this level of weight, then maybe they didn't, haven't fully grasped the gospel and then also the mission, uh, that God's given to his church. And so I, I feel like, you know, this this is probably uh, a weight and responsibility that every generation has experienced and we're just now coming into our own acceptance and embrace of it. Um, why I think it's really important for us and what will happen if we don't, uh, if we fumble the ball or drop the baton is um, I think uh, number one, uh, we uh, are just, we risk living in disobedience to the mm. life that God's uh, given to us, the the very expensive price that he paid to raise uh, Hmong people up to the level in which the scriptures say we are co-heirs with Christ. Like that's a mind-boggling concept that, you know, the picture that we have as humble village, you know, tribal people, which mm-hmm. that's not who we are because none of us have ever lived in that, but <laughs> yeah. that's still a part of our psyche mm-hmm. that the Bible actually says, no, you're actually raised to a level of, you know, divine royalty. You're co-heirs with Christ. Uh, and then we live beneath that. I think, um, you know, as a father, I would feel, you know, sad if my children live beneath the purposes and the potential that I worked very hard to give to them. And so I think, you know, that's 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 our that's a relational aspect that we have to deal with with God mm-hmm. is our, our our own obedience. And you know, uh, it, that's not an individual thing. Like I don't think re- yeah. this is not just me feeling bad that you know, as an individual, I didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't do more. I mean, it is a collective from my brothers and sisters in uh, California to North Carolina to, you know, north to the south to, you know, uh, uh, I would feel bad if all of us, if we fumbled kind of this opportunity to do more. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've had this conversation with a few people, but I, I really, I don't think uh, it's no longer the first gen's responsibility to try to figure out how to move forward as a church. You know, mm. I don't think that is their responsibility. I think that has fully been placed onto the second generation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, for goodness sakes, I was the first born in America. I was born in 1979 in America. And I'm 38 years old. It mm. sounds ridiculous to me to try to blame a first gen <laughs> person yeah. to teach me how to be on mission and to teach me how to lead a church and, and plant churches. Like, I mean, for us to do that, you know, that's the ultimate, excuse me to offend if I offend you guys, that's the ultimate millennial fumble <laughs> is to blame <laughs> somebody else. You know? It's not my fault. It's yeah. not my fault. And so, uh, you know, I think uh, those are some of the things. And I think lastly, um, uh, you know, uh, our kids, 
my my children and and then yours too. You guys are gonna have kids. You're not that young. <laughs> um, I think uh, I I want them to be. This is just completely just you know human flesh, but I want them to be able to say uh, with pride in the same way that I say with pride about my parents' generation that man they worked really hard to plant mm-hmm. churches. They worked really hard. They didn't know to do more than what they did, but as much as they knew, they did the best that they could with it. Yeah. And I would hate for my kids to say, man, my parents were educated and they were smart and they were, they spoke English better than some of my, you know, redneck friends down the street or some of my <laughs> ghetto friends, you know, and uh, they're more educated, but they never reached out to those people. You know, I, I would mm. feel, I would feel like a weight of responsibility if that's, that was our legacy mm-hmm. as, as Hmong Americans. Yeah. 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 I, I think with this generation's responsibility to, to not only interact with these conversations, but to, to capture this, to, to bear that torch that's been handed to us. What's at stake is the gospel mm-hmm. first and foremost. Um, when we, when we fail to recognize that, um, our duty to move the church forward, um, when we, when we fail to recognize that it's our job now, um, the the gospel doesn't move forward in in any direction whether it's for the Hmong people or for non-Hmong people or um you know as as we develop an understanding for why we need to do this it has to come back to just understanding like you were saying like are we going to be obedient to the lord mm-hmm. in this in, in this space and so um there are tons of other things that are at stake as far as like what's the next generation going to get what's uh, you know what are we going to throw on them as far as their call to to obey the lord right mm-hmm. but i think if we don't really grasp this now um the difficulty is going to be like the gospel is going to drop as far as our desire to to bring it to the rest of the world mm-hmm. and and we'll miss out like the picture that keeps coming to my mind is is Israel and like their fear of stepping into Canaan and, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, you know, they wander for 40 years and then that generation (laughs) dies, you know? Um, and, and you lose out on the opportunity of doing what God has called you to do. And God didn't call the Israelites into Canaan to conquer it, but he called them into Canaan to, to share who God is with those people (laughs) that they might step into that land and, and be representatives of God, that they might affect those people around them. And we have that opportunity now as as a second generation, um, and even some of our older third generation individuals, we have that opportunity to step into this Canaan, so to speak, um, and affect the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And we might miss out on that opportunity. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, well, um, yeah, that was a good discussion. I'm really glad we had this. Um, And I'm just excited for kind of what future topics we're going to talk about because there seems to be a ton (laughs) that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for those of you guys who are listening, if you're curious about something, you have a topic you want us to tackle, um, let us know. Um, But for now, that'll be all. So I'll close this out in prayer. Um, God, I thank you so much for the story of the Hmong people. Um, And I thank you, God, that we can be a part of a story that... Um, still kind of in the workings, God, and um, I just feel like, God, there is a story of the Hmong people that you've written that we have not yet discovered. 
Um, and so help us to be part of that in just being able to hear that story and telling people the story the way that you've written it, the way that you see it, God. And so um, whatever that takes, whether it's just discussions among the Hmong people, whether it's discovering our identity, trying to figure out who we are, God, um, teach us what it looks like to not shortcut our story mm-hmm. so that we can fully understand every single part that you've written so we can appreciate it, so we can walk out in it, God, so that we can contribute kind of to the bigger body of Christ, um, what it looks like to be Hmong Christian American. Um, and so we thank you so much, God, and uh, we just pray for um, kind of the discussions that will come out of this, um, God, that you would use it, and it, like we said, God, that it would bring you the most glory. And so we thank you so much. We lift this up to you in your name, I pray. Amen. Hey, this is Daniel. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. Myla, George, and myself will be back again with another discussion about Hmong American identity, theology, and mission. Uh, but can you do us a favor? Can you share the Yesu Communitas podcast with your friends? And then also remember to like today's show, uh, share it out on Facebook, and then subscribe to Yesu Communitas on iTunes. All right, see you in the next episode.